0: welcome to the American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. My name is Millie Long. I'm one of the co-editors-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And on behalf of myself and my co-editor, Jaz Bajaj, I'd like to welcome our guest for today. So Dr. Alberto Rubio Tapia is at Cleveland Clinic, where he's the director of the Celiac Disease Program there. And Alberto, we're thrilled to have you for this podcast.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Well, and one of the things we're most excited about is that I'm interviewing you because of the newest celiac disease guidelines, which you just published in American Journal of Gastroenterology. I think there's a lot to learn for our providers out there. So I want to jump in with just uh, some questions so you can help us to highlight some of the most important features of the guideline. One of the, the first questions I have has to do with diagnosis. Can you talk us through What you recommended is the current gold standard for diagnosis of celiac disease, both in adults and in children?
1: This first question is very important because it is one of the changes in this current guideline. For children and adults, the gold standard for diagnosis remains the biopsy of the duodenum with multiple biopsies to confirm the diagnosis by pathology. However, now we are accepting, as a suggestion, an alternative diagnosis without biopsy children. But it's a, a very specific group of children that need to have this the following criteria. So they need to have a tissue transglutaminase antibody, IgA, more than 10 times the upper limit of normal, and in a different blood sample, a positive endometrial antibody for confirmation of the diagnosis. And the other important aspect of this, uh, not biopsy diagnosis, is that the family has to agree with the alternative to the biopsy. Other than that, you know, biopsy remains the gold standard for the diagnosis.
0: For some children, it sounds like you may be able to avoid the invasive Diagnostic testing and potentially that may shorten the time to getting them on treatment as
1: well. Absolutely. So, this is uh, following recommendations from the European societies. Initially, the data was not uh, that robust, but now we have uh, enough evidence to accept that alternative in children with those characteristics.
0: So, as we're thinking about who to test, does this guideline recommend any population-based testing? Should we be testing everyone? Or if not, who are the patients that we
1: should be testing? So, that's a very important question. And in the, from the clinical practice aspect, is about clinical suspicion. Who is the person that we need to test for? Mass screening is not recommended. Actually, the guideline recommends against mass screening for several reasons, including the lack of uh, longitudinal follow-up when uh, for that type of practice. But the current testing paradigm suggests to look for celiac disease in condition at, at risk for the for celiac disease, what is called co- case finding. And that is opens uh, the testing uh, use of uh, a, a big number of of potential patients, meaning uh, beyond diarrhea, uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, but also uh, patients with gastrointestinal manifestations such as iron deficiency anemia that is unexplained, infertility, elevation of liver function tests that are unexplained, family members of patients with proven celiac disease, especially first-degree family members, and in some uh, circumstances, second-degree family members, and there's more than one family member affected in that family. And, you know, the list of potential indications for testing just gets bigger.
0: But still, we should have that clinical factor, whether it's some factor associated with malabsorption or potentially reduced growth in children or infertility or many of those factors you mentioned that we should test for and shouldn't just be globally testing for celiac disease. And so let's say we make the diagnosis uh, of celiac disease. Obviously, we all know the therapeutic intervention is a gluten-free diet that we start with in terms of management. What goals do you recommend for assessing outcomes? Should we be following serologies to ensure our people are, our patients are improving? Or are there other outcomes that this guideline now recommends for continued assessment in our patients with?
1: Yeah, I think this is a very important question, and it's one of the highlights of the guideline. This is a guideline to help clinicians to make the diagnosis, but also to take care of the patients. It's totally patient-centered guideline, meaning the goal of the gastroenterologist doesn't end with the diagnosis. It's just the beginning. And that sounds like a well-known fact, but unfortunately, in real life, it's not happening. So then the highlight of the guideline is about follow-up and the goal of the therapy should be very clear by having a, a good discussion between the patient and the provider. We propose the intestinal healing as a goal of the gluten-free diet, but that is kind of the end goal of the therapy that we, will, we suggest to check for intestinal healing two years after following the gluten-free diet. And this is just applicable for adults. We don't suggest this goal of intestinal healing in children, because we know by multiple studies that in children, mucosal healing happens faster, and most often that in adults. But in addition to that, we really need to take care of the patient by providing all the need that they need, that, that all the help that they may need. For example, uh, it is recommended to have a visit with a dietitian that knows about celiac disease to implement the gluten-free diet that is the main treatment for these patients. In addition to that, we review vaccinations during the visit with the patients to do preventive care. And uh, during your question, you mentioned following the serology. That's a very important parameter to know that the patients are strict with a gluten-free diet because the expectation is to see decrease in the level of the baseline serology at three, six months after starting the gluten-free diet. And most patients have a normal value around a year after the diagnosis. If that doesn't happen, then we need to know why.
0: It's interesting because this, I don't believe this was a part of prior celiac disease guidelines, this idea of treating to mucosal healing. And I obviously do work in the realm of inflammatory bowel diseases, and, and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis is the same fashion. We're starting to try to target mucosal healing you know as an outcome to improve long-term complications so I, I I think it's interesting and important to try to get our patients as healed as possible it'll be interesting to see what that means, there different variations of, of healing and different variations of improvement and help us to understand and link these data to longer term outcomes I think will be important
1: yeah absolutely i I let me just mention a little bit because this is obviously very attractive now, not just for celiac disease, but other inflammatory conditions like IBD. In celiac disease, the biopsy at baseline usually shows very dramatic changes with velos atrophy and increased intrapithelial lymphocytes. And when the patients follow the diet strictly, the expectation at two years is to see an improvement and in about half of the patients, adult patients, we can see a, a normalization of the biopsy with an improvement of the villous atrophy. So that is a, it's a very objective way to assess the improvement when they follow a strict gluten-free diet. In addition to that, the reason why we are listening to have this conversation with the patients to make that a goal is because long-term prognosis is better for the patients that achieve mucosal healing and celiac disease and the risk of some complications like bone disease or even some malignancies like lymphoma is decreased when the patients achieve mucosal healing on the gluten-free diet. Very helpful.
0: Let me ask one last question, which has to do kind of for, I think, a lot of questions that we as providers get asked by our patients. There are many devices out there now that kind of supposedly measure gluten and help us to help patients to determine what may or may not be safe to eat. Does your guideline provide any recommendations surrounding these?
1: Thank you so much, So, So the devices and also tests to look for gluten in in urine, for example, in a stool are available because they don't require FDA approval. So they are available for the public. And it is a specific guideline we assess that concern and uh, we uh, suggest against the use of those devices or looking for uh, gluten in fluids uh, like urine in, as a routine clinical practice because we need more information on how to use these tools. Some patients really like to use these tools, and we recognize that that for some patients it may be very helpful at the personal level. But this guideline is about recommendations for everybody, and this is where the information is not quite there. I think it's very important that this guideline start an open conversation about these tools that are available, and hopefully in the future, in a revised uh, guideline, we can make more recommendations or specific recommendations about the applicability in clinical practice.
0: Not quite ready for prime time as of yet. Not enough evidence there to help us uh, with some of these novel devices. I appreciate you joining uh, joining me today. This has been so informative to help us to really understand more about diagnostics and outcomes and what the truly most recent evidence-based recommendations are for the management of celiac disease. And so uh, hopefully this will help all of us and the management of our patients. And, and thanks again for joining me today.
1: I'm very happy to talk about celiac disease. I love to talk about celiac disease. I love to take care of patients with celiac disease. And I think that celiac disease is extremely important for the GI community.
0: Thanks again.